Just last week, when I accompanied my wife to the hospital for her checkup, we encountered three unplanned moments that may have got some relevance for our passage today. The first was when we bumped into an old acquaintance who shared how his own brother had cut off all ties with him over a major misunderstanding. And despite making repeated attempts over the last six years for them to sit down, to talk it over so they can be reconciled, his brother was even more hardened than before and had actually told him, I will never forgive you until the day I die. I thought to myself as I reflected over his story, what a sharp, stark contrast it is to, to our passage today where a paralytic was blessed with the precious friendship of four very special buddies. Special friends who went against all odds to secure the former's healing, even if it means breaking all conventions to climb up someone else's roof house and then break through the roof and and then lowering the friend from the rooftop into the presence of Jesus. And I thought, if friends who are unrelated can enjoy such special bond, why must blood brothers harbor hatred until the day they die? The second encounter was when an ex-colleague of my wife suddenly came to Phoebe and said, now Phoebe had spent 23 years working in that hospital. And though she had left 10 years ago, there are still many friends who are there. So one of the ex-colleagues came to her and said, Wow, it must be so nice for you to have retired so you can now enjoy life at home, right? To which my wife quickly replied, Not true. I'm working so much harder now as a homemaker. As I reflected over what she said, she is absolutely correct. And if I may say a word to all husbands, we need to appreciate all that our wives are doing at home and we need to pitch in in significant ways rather than just giving them token support. That's a sure way for them uh, to appreciate us uh, on their part too. But on a positive note, I think it is a singular devotion of wives and mums to their families that have flowed out to bless the entire household, just as the unflinching devotion of four special friends had flowed out richly to bless this paralytic. The third encounter was when I was listening to a Christian song sent over by a brother in this church. Now he figured that Phoebe and I could do with some assurances while waiting to see the doctor about a growth on Phoebe's neck. And so he sent us a lovely song with assuring lyrics. Uh, we really appreciate his uh, thoughtfulness and we are even more thankful to God to discover that it was only a cyst. But guess what? There was another Malay lady waiting to see the same doctor. And I saw her taking out her handphone to listen, not to a hymn, but to her Muslim call to prayer. And after which I saw her bowing her head for a quiet moment of reflection, presumably to also pray to her God. This is a simple reminder that regardless of our religion, a common denominator that unites mankind 
is our propensity to look up to God in the face of sickness. Am I not right? Maybe that's why the Gospel of Mark is full of accounts of the healing ministry of Jesus, including our text for today. And brothers and sisters, we are now at Mark chapter 2. And this is the sixth sermon in our series on the Gospel of Mark. And so if I were to help us to briefly recap the flow of thought until the end of chapter 1, so that you can see where the text today dovetails in, uh, it will look something like that. Now I've said, I'm going to give you, uh, recall to you what I've uh, said in an earlier sermon, and that's one person's way of looking at how uh, the flow of thought is developing, and there could be other ways. Uh, and so I'll just share you uh, the way I'm looking at it. So from an earlier sermon, I've said that the Gospel of Mark begins with a declaration in the very first verse that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And the Gospel writer, Mark, then offers us three crucial evidences to support that claim. Evidence number one, a quick recap. The major figures of the Old and New Testaments, represented by Isaiah and John the Baptist, they all pointed to Jesus as the coming Lord. That's verses 1 to 8. Evidence number 2. The two other persons of the Godhead, Father and Holy Spirit, also identified Jesus as the beloved Son. And that's from verse 9, roughly until verse 20. And evidence number 3. The people he ministered to quickly sensed right from the start of his ministry that he has the authority of someone divine. That's from verse 21 onwards. Now from the way Mark wrote his gospel, the first two evidences are done and over with by the time we get to verse 20. The reason is because these are one of events in the past such as Isaiah's prophecy of the coming Lord, or the Baptist's preparatory role for the Messiah, or the father and son's affirmation of him as beloved son during his baptism. Since these events are time-based in the past, they are done and over with once it has happened. But the third evidence, which has got to do with the people's growing recognition of his authority, now that's different because it continues with Jesus' ongoing ministry. In fact, Mark will add one subpoint after another, just to bolster this third evidence as his gospel unfolds. And hence, if we are to zoom in on the subpoints that support this third evidence, it will look like that until the end of chapter 1. So the key question here would be, what did Jesus do? to make people increasingly recognize his divine authority. A, he taught with special authority, unlike the scribes. And we saw that, right, at the first sermon itself when he preached at a synagogue at Capernaum. B, he expelled demons, or he exorcised demons, just by a word of rebuke. It also happened during that first sermon. C, he healed the sick just by a touch or a word of command. On the same day itself, after the synagogue, he went to Peter's mother-in-law's home, and there he healed her, just by a touch. D. He could even heal leprosy, for which there's no cure. That was Pastor Peter's uh, sermon 
last Sunday, if you remember. And from our sermon today, you could also add in yet another sub-point, which is up here in the screen. He has authority on earth to even forgive sins. Wow, that's something, right? So if you were to sum up what we are going to say today, it would be just that sentence, uh, sentence E. Now from the above outline, there are two key observations I want to make before I go to the text for today. First, did you notice that Jesus was involved in exorcism right from the start of his ministry? The very first sermon he preached, there was an exorcism. And on the same day itself, he was also involved in healing for Peter's mother-in-law. And we need to pause and ask, why is this so? Why did Mark highlight both exorcism and the healing ministry of Jesus right from the word go? What is he trying to say? Simply this. Exorcism and miraculous healings are the two most spectacular demonstrations of the power and the authority of Jesus as beloved son. And Mark, the writer of our gospel, offered both of them as irrefutable evidences of his divine authority. Now pause and think with me. In the many power encounters that are recorded in the gospel of Mark, it is always Satan who is defeated and Jesus who is victorious. 100% of the time, it's always Satan who will be defeated, Jesus who will be victorious. Unless we think that exorcism is actually a very simple matter, chicken feet. Let me tell you, it is not so. For example, if you read Mark chapter 9, verse 28, there was an incident when the disciples tried. Now, these are the apostles, mind you. They tried, but they failed to cast out demons. What happens? Their pride must be dented. Am I not right? And so, we are told that they asked Jesus privately for the reason of their failure. That's being very human, right? If you sit for an exam today and you get a string of A's, not everything is super good. Oh, you were broadcast to the world. But if you flung most of subjects, believe me, you will keep that very private, right? Nobody broadcasts your failures, right? So that's what they are doing here. My point is that even the mighty apostles never always succeeded in exorcism. On another occasion, Acts 19, the seven sons of Seba, the Jewish chief priest of Corinth, guess what? They were jealous of Paul's success in exorcism. They then tried to imitate Paul by casting out demons. Look at this. In the name of Jesus whom Paul preaches. They don't have a personal relationship with Jesus himself. The best they could do is to try to cast out demons in the name of Jesus whom Paul preaches. But guess what? The demons are not stupid. right? So, so one of the demons challenged the seven imitators by saying, Jesus I know, and Paul I know about, but who are you? And watch what happened next. Acts chapter 19 verse 16. Then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered them all. He gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. Now you know why Pastor Bunyong and myself, 
we are very cautious when it comes to exorcism. We just refer it to Pastor Peter since he's not here today. So, my point is that exorcism is not a walk in the park. But when it comes to Jesus, even the demons knew who he was. We saw that in chapter 1. Two times it was mentioned. They tremble in his presence. And it's always Satan who is defeated. Jesus who is victorious. And that's why Mark highlighted exorcism as one of the evidences of his divine authority. A second observation is this. Now, in the case of Peter's mother-in-law and many others in the gospel, Mark tells us that Jesus could heal just by a touch or a word of command. Pause. Why did Mark offer this simple detail? Why is it important for Jesus to heal just by his touch? You see, in the world that Jesus lived in, there were many quack doctors who used magic and amulets, witchcraft, spells, incantations, and all sorts of things, all sorts of methods to try to heal. For example, the apocryphal book Tobit tells the story of the healing of a blind man by blowing the gall of a fish into his eyes. Don't try that at home, please. But it was recorded there in an apocryphal book. And that's not all. The second century Syrian writer by the name of Lucian, he also described, the next PowerPoint, I think, he also described several, several friends who agreed that the best remedy for rheumatic feet is to tie around them a weasel's tooth, pick up from the ground with the left hand, not the right hand. As to why, I don't know. So that part they would agree, but they disagree whether it should be wrapped with the skin of a lion because it is brave or with the, sk the skin of a deer because it is swift. Now to skeptics like Lucian, all this seemed rather silly. And they had a field day criticizing such stories, such stories of healing as hocus pocus. And so in the midst of all kinds of dubious methods, Mark records how Jesus could heal simply by his touch or by a word of command. No need to go into all this kind of funny, funny practices. And the moment he did that, the results are visible for all to see. And so the point is to present Jesus as clearly of a different league. And his healing pro prowess would lead people to conclude that he has the authority of someone divine. So given these explanations now, we are ready to look at our text for today, starting from Mark chapter 2, verse 1. And the scripture says, a few days after the healing of the leper, that was last Sunday's sermon, right? A few days after that, Jesus returned to Capernaum. Now pause. Why Capernaum again? Why did he keep going back there? The answer is given in Matthew chapter 4, verse 13, where we are told that upon leaving Nazareth, he came and what? He settled in Capernaum. So it looks like Jesus may have started a home. You know, he may have, uh, maybe he owned one, maybe he rented one. We don't know, but it looks like he has got a base, a home in Capernaum. 
And it could well be that the healing of the paralytic may have taken place there. We can't be sure on, on, on this count, but that's why he kept going back. But the only problem for the paralytic was that a huge crowd had gathered in front of his house the moment they heard he had returned. Verse 2 tells us, they gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door. And that's a major problem for the paralytic because there's no way he could make it through that throng. In fact, the adjective large for large numbers is the same word used for a field that is plentiful with harvest. So you can imagine the mass of bodies gathered there. Now, one would have expected under normal circumstances for some sympathy to be shown to this paralytic with a crowd graciously making way and letting him through. But the fact that he wasn't suggests that everyone there may be so desperate for healing. And it was a case of every man for himself first. Unless we become too judgmental as a comparison, think about what's happening in Singapore today. If a tiny virus can create such panic buying among healthy Singaporeans with hordes of people rushing to be ahead of others at the supermarket, you know, we better grab the stuff for ourselves first, right? So if healthy Singaporeans are doing that, why should those who are desperately sick be expected to graciously give way? Think about that. But thankfully, his four buddies would not easily give up. Not when they've come so close to the master healer himself. And that's why they decided on a most audacious plan. And so verse 4 tells us, since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it and then lowered the mat the man was lying on. Notice, they didn't ask permission because nobody does that when your intention is to climb up someone else's house and break through his roof. And believe me, if you are the owner of that house, you will not find this amusing. It is easy for someone to cut a hole through your roof, but it is very difficult to repair it such that it doesn't leak again in the future. Am I all right? You will not find this too amusing. So here are the facts as we begin chapter 2. In chapter 1, when Jesus preached his first sermon in a synagogue, he was interrupted by a man who was demon-possessed. And now in chapter 2, as he preached his sermon at home, he was interrupted by a paralytic lowered from the roof, commando style. But unlike the earlier incident, when he rebuked the demons, there were only words of praise for Jesus, uh, for the paralytic and his friends. Look at verse 5. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, Son, your sins are forgiven. What did Jesus see? Jesus saw their faith. And the faith that Jesus saw is not just an intellectual assent or an emotional feeling. What he saw was unflinching determination plus resolute action to follow through. For as we all know, mere talk is useless because words can be cheap and vacuous. But biblical faith always comes with a daring spirit to hope against hope 
followed by a firm commitment to secure that goal. So we need to ask ourselves as we read a verse like this, is God prompting any of us at this juncture and point to also step up in faith in this season in our life? People of God, faith decisions are never easy and always costly, but it is worth it. Why? Because our Heavenly Father has eyes to see. And when He has helped us through to fulfill that, those faith decisions, whatever it is, the feeling in the heart will be lovely. Some months ago, a sister came to me and handed me an envelope saying, Pastor, please use this money to pay for the medical needs, set up a fund to pay for the medical needs of our pastors in this country. She named that country. It was a significant amount. Realizing that she is not a high earner herself, and she also has got some major needs in her own family. As a pastoral team, we know that. And to be honest, my heart pained when I realized the amount she had given. And I told myself, I told myself that she shouldn't be the one making such sacrifices, given that she has got her own needs. And you know what? I was actually very, very happy to subsequently learn that another church had already set up the fund to pay for the medical needs of those pastors. So when I learned that, I confirmed that, I quickly called her back and said, I'm going to return you the money. I was very happy to want to do that. But she said to me, in that case, Pastor Daniel, please use it for any other needs in that same country. Now, it was clear that she was determined. I learned that this is not the first time. She'd been doing it for other countries too. And so we used the money and it was enough to pay for three years' salary for a church planter in that country. And so we set that aside. And finally, when that church is set up and going, a lot of credit will go to this unnamed sister. That's not all. Last month, she came to me again and passed me another envelope. And this time, it is twice the original amount. It is like she just wants to give me a heart attack. And I remember again, checking with her, sister, is this really what you want to do? Yes. I went home and once again, I found myself lamenting to God, Lord, why is it that the people who should not be making such sacrifices are the ones who are giving so sacrificially? I have no answers to that, except to say, to remind myself, remind all of us here, that our Lord Jesus sees every single act of faith. And so I, see, I say to one and all, whether it is a decision to follow Jesus full-time, like Peter, Andrew, James, and John, we saw that in chapter 1, or to accept the call to step up in responsibilities in our church, or to give to missions or to give sacrificially to the church plant project, we all recognize this. Faith decisions are never easy and always costly. But our Heavenly Father has got eyes to see. And when it is done with, the feeling in the heart will be lovely. Back to the paralytic. Jesus didn't promise healing. Notice that. Jesus didn't promise healing when he first spoke. He only told the paralytic, your sins are forgiven. And again, we need to pause and ask, why? Does it mean 
Does this mean that there is a link between one's sickness and sin? Is the scripture trying to tell us that? So here's my take as I reflected. Not all sickness is due to sin. And very godly people in history have also died from sudden sickness too. So please never make that association. Please never say, oh, if so and so is so terribly sick, he must be a very sinful man or woman. Never, never go that way, please. On some occasions, however, it could be that our sickness may be the result of a sinful behavior, such as when an alcoholic abuses liquor consumption, leading to liver failure and early death. It can happen on some of these cases. Now, we don't know if the paralytic's condition is a result of the sin. We don't know because Jesus made that statement, but he never explained. He was silent. And there was a reason for this silence. Did it occur to you that the paralytic and his friends only play a secondary role in the text here? The main storyline and the main actors actually come right after this in the encounter between Jesus and the religious teachers. And that's why Jesus can afford to be silent uh, because they, the paralytic and, and friends, only form the subplot. Diaz is only the cameo role. But when it come to the, comes to the religious teachers, guess what? They were not prepared to be silent. You understand? They may be silent because they're doing a lot of thinking in the mind, but they were not silent too. They were actually indignant, as you can now see in verses 6 and 7. Now, some of the teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? Notice that cause language there. They didn't even say, why does this teacher or this rabbi? They said, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. I mean, who can forgive sins but God alone? Friends, this is the first public encounter between Jesus and the religious leaders. And there will be plenty more. You see, as teachers of the law, they were the official leaders, so to say. They were the authorized interpreters of the Torah. And they must be pretty upset by now because the people had become so enamored with Jesus. They even had the gumption to say it in verse 22, chapter 1, verse 22, that he taught us as one with authority. And watch this not as the teachers of the law. Wow, that last part really stung their pride because the people were in effect saying that Jesus is so much better, so much more engaging, so much more enlightening than you know, the, the religious teachers we have heard before. And that stung them. And so they've come here now to check him out for themselves. Not because they were here to take down notes when the pastor is preaching. You know, They were here to check him out and, you know, hopefully he will make some mistakes so that they can rebut him later on. And when they heard Jesus saying, Son, your sins are forgiven, their ears instantly perked up. And my guess is that their eyeballs went rolling with disbelief. Now, let me ask you, have you ever been in a situation where, in a crowd, right, you're giving a speech and you said something wrong and instantly 20 pairs of eyes are now staring at you? If looks could kill, you would have died 20 deaths, believe me. I get that from my wife from time to time. Don't know about you. And this seems to be how 
they are looking at Jesus at that very moment. They were probably sneering at him and silently they now accuse him of blasphemy. According to the Torah, Leviticus 24, blasphemers should be stoned to death. And so Mark highlighted this right at the beginning of Jesus' ministry in chapter 2. He highlights the issue of blasphemy. In fact, this is the same quote-unquote crime that was subsequently lead to his crucifixion by the time you get to Mark 14. And the real irony is that the scribes were absolutely right, except they didn't even realize it. Indeed, who can forgive sins but God alone, as they have rightly said? But what if Jesus is God? That's the point of Mark, is it not? Except that the scribes were so blinded by envy, they never imagined this could be so. So here then is the crux of the matter. On one hand, ordinary simple folks like the paralytic and friends, they showed so much faith in Jesus' authority that they will break all conventions just to get to the front of the queue to see him. On the other hand, the most learned teachers of the law, who already had a front seat view of Jesus, they can be so blinded by envy plus their self-confidence, they will never recognize his authority no matter what. How will this end? Well, in yet another demonstration of his divine power, Mark tells us how Jesus was able to read the mind of the scribes. So I'm going to invite you to join me to read verses 8 to 12 before I comment. So let's read together. Immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, Why are you thinking these things? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Get up, take your mat, and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, said to the paralytic, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. He got up, took his mat, and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, We have never seen anything like this. My friends, the logic here is actually very simple. It is much easier to say, your sins are forgiven, than to say, arise, take your mat and walk. For the first promise, the audience have no way to verify whether or not forgiveness of sin had actually happened. And so Jesus could get away even if it did not happen. Am I not right? I mean, you can't read what is invisible, right? So it is actually easy for Jesus to just do that. But when it comes to the second command, the audience can easily tell whether the paralytic can stand up and walk or not. And so there's no way Jesus could escape censure if he were only a con man. And that means if Jesus were to put his neck on the chopping board, and if the paralytic could indeed rise up and walk, it should be crystal clear to one and all that he has got powers that are divine. And if he could pass the second test, which is so much harder, 
Why should anyone doubt his ability to fulfill the first, namely, the power to forgive sins? Hence, it is for the sake of the religious teachers that he offered visible proof of his divine powers. But sadly, it was to no avail, because by the time you get to Mark chapter 3, verse 6, now we are now in chapter 2, right? Just one more chapter. So early on in the Gospel of Mark, they had decided they got to kill him. But as for the rest of the crowd, their growing recognition of his divine authority was summed up in their last sentence. We have never seen anything like this. So as I conclude, brothers and sisters, the audience, the audience have just said, we have never seen anything like this. The question we need to ask is, now what have you and I seen about Jesus of late? And how has that changed the way I'm living? Once again, the Gospel of Mark is not written for us to see him and just admire him passively from a distance. It was written to secure our active commitment in discipleship, in day-to-day -day living. We need to remember, ordinary folks like the paralytic and his friends showed enough faith in Jesus that they were prepared to break all conventions just to get to the front to see him. What about us today? Are we making the same mistake as the religious teachers, having all the right doctrines but not bowing to the authority and the lordship of Christ? Is our faith reduced to the safe zones of hate knowledge plus the traditional way of just living our Christian life alone? Is that all? Can our friends honestly testify that we are serious about God, that we hunger to make a difference in church and in society? Can they testify that our faith is actually marked by radical discipleship? Radical, not in the sense of mindless recklessness, but a deeply passionate faith rooted in ever-deepening love for Christ. Can they say that? My friends, if the heavens tore open at Jesus' baptism, then those who are baptized in his name should not expect a discipleship that is bland or just cruising along. And we need to constantly ask ourselves. I have to ask you as I ask myself to. Is our witness consistent rather than convenient? Is our giving sacrificial rather than superficial? Is our service to God joyful rather than painful? And the last question. When was the last time I made a faith decision that is not easy and pretty costly? And what have I learned about God and myself as a result of that? I challenge us, even if you're not answering the question, answering this question yourselves now, I challenge us that the next time that we are gathered as a care group, perhaps we should spend some time to explore this. We need to share our own testimonies so that we can encourage others. And we also need the community of faith to hold us accountable for the way we are living. For now, let us pause to pray. Father God, in a world where it is so easy to pay lip service to our Christian faith, give us the conviction to follow Jesus boldly, passionately, and unreservedly, 
even if it may be unconventional at times. Father, spare us from the blight of having all the right beliefs and yet hardly bowing to the Lordship and the authority of Jesus Christ. We want to offer ourselves afresh to walk in the footsteps of our Master and Saviour who had laid down his life to fulfill the will of his Father. And we pray this in our Lord's most precious name. Amen.